Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity again to, to look at some of the things that uh, affect people's vision. And again, as this draws them into our clinics, we ask that uh, you figure out, you help us figure out a way to connect them to you, to give them true vision of, of eternal life and prevent some of the suffering that's in the world today and help us to be tools in your tool chest for that. In your name I pray, amen. Again, I have no financial incentives in any specific product or company mentioned here today. And again, I like this verse that the lamp is the body, or the lamp of the body is the eye. And therefore, the eye is good. Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So the old saying goes, the eye is the window into the soul. Today, we're going to change that and say the eye is the window into the soul of diabetes. So again, our learning objectives for this course are understand the etiology, pathophysiology, diagnosis, and treatment of diabetic retinopathy, and then how diabetes affects the vision structures and affects vision and structures of the eye other than the retina, and understand why yearly dilated eye exams are so important, and why communication between professionals are so important as well. So we'll go ahead and start on types of diabetic retinopathy. So you have non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy in general, and then proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Proliferative just means proliferation of blood vessel growth in the retina that shouldn't be happening. And so of non-proliferative, you have mild, moderate, and severe, or some people could say pre-proliferative, and then you have early and high-risk proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Each one of these can be with or without diabetic macular edema, so, or DME. So you can have DME with non-proliferative, or you can have DME with proliferative. If the DME is close to the macula, or in the macula, then it's clinically significant macular edema. So you can have DME without CSME, but you can't have CSME without DME. So CSME implies that you've got DME, it's just where it's at. And so CSME is not good, clinically significant macular edema, because that is um, leading cause of vision loss. So DME, so as defined is retinal thickening within two disc diopters, from the center of the macula. And so if we look at the macula right here in the optic nerve and the blood vessels, we're looking two disc diameters. It has to be treated if it becomes CME. And CME is retinal thickening 500 microns from the fovea or less, or hard exudates within 500 microns from the fovea or less with retinal thickening, or at least one DD or disc diameter of thickening any part of which is within one disc diameter of the fovea. This is based on the early treatment diabetic retinop uh, retinopathy study in 1985, and this kind of set our, our guidelines and what we, we go by. And so this all looks familiar to everybody in the eye world because here's the fovea, the center of the macula, the, the uh, parafovea, the periphovea, and the macula in the and then right in there, you have this foveal avascular zone, the foveola, and the umbo, which is right in there in the middle. 
So uh, let's go here, case study. So I want to go through a typical diabetic patient with you and just kind of take you back to your office, <laughs> which is just what you want, right? To hit, yeah, you're, you're here, and, and now I've got to take you back and start thinking. So we got a 58-year-old white male. He's a new patient that I saw about two years ago, two and a half years ago. He was referred to me by a local family practice uh, physician. He's a welder, and this is his first eye exam ever at age 58. So he smokes one pack a day and he has for 40 years. He has diabetes and he has for five years, which begs the question, what happened? Uh, how come it's five years later that he's getting his first eye exam ever? Okay, which you've all had those patients. You're like, hmm, okay. Because standard of care for the last 30 years or more is yearly dilated eye exams. And uh, so, and he's got hypertension, he's got COPD, he has high cholesterol and heart problems. So probably the local family physician was distracted by all the things going on and forgot completely about the eyes, uh, assuming that he was following this same doctor, but he might've been non-compliant, who knows. And he's now had sleep apnea for seven years and his fasting uh, plasma glucose runs, you know, 111, 119, which isn't too bad. And he has no idea what his A1C is. How many can relate? Yep, you get those patients all the time. And so, and then incidentally, uh, now, over the last year or so, you really have to go and get the A1C. So now my staff, if they don't have an A1C, they know they're on the phone with the physician's office getting the A1C. And uh, that's a higher level of care and that's something that you are really supposed to be doing because that, the A1C is, is, a, is basically on average a three month average of what's, what's happening in that, in that blood over that many times and as the red blood cells get uh, glycosylated or sugar coated, then that gives you an idea of how high that sugar was in the blood over the last three months. And I'm looking for a thermostat. I see people shivering in here, and I don't see one. Can you work on that, Dennis? Thank you. So when you see this patient, and you see the little bit of a history that we've got, is this patient, um, what's the level of risk, if any, for future vision loss? Is this you know, low risk, medium risk, high risk? What's, what's your thinking here? It's like, OK, you have, we haven't done anything but look at the history. So let's go through this. Well, the first thing that you're gonna worry about, okay, the diabetic retinopathy. So, so I've, I've grabbed the chart, and I'm bef I, before I step into the room, I've already started thinking what I'm looking for. I'm looking for diabetic retinopathy. I'm looking for hypertensive retinopathy. Why? Because he's got hypertension too. I'm looking for ARMD, macular degeneration. Why? Because he's a smoker, okay? I'm also looking for nuclear sclerosis cataracts, why? Uh, he's a smoker, he's got uh, diabetes and he's 58. So pretty much normal Americans uh, are gonna start getting cataracts in their 50s and 60s and by 70s or 80s is usually when they get bad enough for surgery in general, of course. And I'm looking for glaucoma, why? Glaucoma specifically, it's one of the three diabetic eye diseases cataracts, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy. Those are the three diabetic eye diseases. So <clears throat> more than that though, 
sleep apnea. So you know that, and, and he's a smoker, that increases your risk, but 40% of people with sleep apnea have low tension glaucoma. And 70% of your low tension glaucoma patients have sleep apnea. This is highly correlated, okay? Which just makes sense. If you stop breathing and you don't get oxygen to that neural tissue, the neural tissue is gonna die. So if you have a lot of sleep apnea events at night and you're not on a, on a CPAP or a BiPAP, a BPAP, BiPAP you're, you're not getting the oxygen that, that tissue needs. Uh, same as any of the other organs in your body. And that's why it's low tension because it's not a high pressure that's causing this. It's actually the low, it, it doesn't matter what their pressure is. The optic nerve is dying even with normal pressure, okay? So that's why it's, it's, uh, it's correlated with the low tension. And of course you're thinking also, I'm thinking, okay, all right, well he's a welder. And so you're, he could have UV keratitis from yesterday's flash burn that he got last night, who knows. And um, also he has high cholesterol, so he could have even Hollenhurst plaques at his age. You could if, if it was really, which is a blockage, you know, of the, of the uh, arteries in there from the internal carotid. So what kind of risk are we at? We're at high risk. So I walk in the room already in my mind, this guy has tremendous risk for tremendous morbidity. And he doesn't even know it. And no eye doctor's ever told him because he's never had an eye exam. And so, but at least the family doctor got him here. So that's great. That's, that's a huge blessing for, the, for this guy. So now we're in the room and now his chief complaint, he says, I've got glare at night. First thing that comes to mind is cataracts. And I've got blurred vision. Well, that can be cataracts, that can be dry eyes, that can be diabetic macular edema, that can be a whole host of, of things, right? And he's got watery eyes. So, of course, watery eyes on a diabetic, what comes to mind first, right? What's your diagnosis? Of course, you're not writing anything down yet. I mean, you're, you're listening to him, but what, what comes straight to mind on a watery eye patient with diabetes is dry eyes. And they just look at you like, what are you talking about? And uh, because it's reflex tearing, they do not feel pain like a normal patient does. So they're not gonna come in saying, my eyes burn, my eyes hurt, like my eyes feel like knives sticking in, like a non-diabetic would come in. They are, diabetics are gonna come in and they're gonna tell you, I've got watery eyes. And you're gonna tell them they have dry eyes and they're gonna laugh at you. But uh, it's just because they don't feel it, and so the dry eye becomes severe, and we're going to talk about this a little bit uh, later too, and then they start getting this reflex tearing, and that's the, the eye's last-ditch effort to save the blindness that would come from extreme bl uh, dryness. And this is his vision. So he's 2100, and he's 2040 in the other eye, so he's barely legal to drive. And so in Tennessee, you have to have 2040 or better in, in one eye. And that's what he's got, barely, all right? And so I can get him better. So a lot of this is astigmatism. So astigmatism, I can get him to 20-25 basically in both eyes. So that, that's good. That tells me right off the bat that his cataracts can't be too severe. And his retinopathy, if he has any, can't be too severe 
because I can improve that. Now, if I, you can't improve that, then uh, obviously you would be more worried about that. Blood pressure was good, though. And now is eye pressure, uh, of course. So people that have a lot of systemic sickness have a lot of eye sickness, too. So not only um, is he at risk for all these other things, and we said glaucoma because of sleep apnea and low tension, but now nah, he's actually got high, ten high tension. So he's got high pressure in there, especially in that left eye. And so once your pressure is high, the thing you've got to figure out is how much can you believe your Goldman tonometer, or, you, or depending on what tonometer you're using. But if you're using Goldman like I am, you've got to do corneal pechometry. And luckily, in his particular case, his corneas were thick. And so because he had thick corneas, and the normal is, is like 540 microns, and his was 595 and 601, you know, some, some of these studies suggest that the pressure actually might be lower inside, but uh, other studies are saying that actually because you have a thick cornea structure, like more two by fours in your cornea, if you translate that all the way around the eye to the, to the optic, optic uh, nerve, you're going to have more two by fours in your optic nerve too to make it stronger. So your, your risk of glaucoma is much, much less with thick corneas. And that's fantastic in his case. Uh, and sure enough, he does have not only nuclear sclerotic, sclerotic cataracts, but he's also got cortical cataracts. And that's why he's having the glare at night. And sure enough, under the, with fluorescein, he's got the dry eyes, and that's causing the watery eyes. And when we dilate him, his CD ratio is great, so that's good. But he has some vessel tortuosity. He has no diabetic retinopathy, and he's got a small chirpy, which is the like a birthmark, a congenital hypertrophy of the retinal pigment epithelial layer. And so we're going to order some tests, though. Now we have to because the pressure is high. And even though with the uh, CD ratios, you've got to have a baseline because what you're trying to find is progression over time with glaucoma. So you're, you're going to order your visual field, your macular OCT, your nerve OCT, your fundus photos, which in, thankfully in his case all came back uh, normal. Why am I doing a macular OCT? I, I mean, in nerve OCT, I'm looking at the retinal or fiber layer. Yeah, I'm looking at ganglion cells, but also specifically, I'm also looking for clinically significant macular edema that I can't see under the slit lamp. And it'll show up on that very easily. And so this is, uh, this, again, our normal eye, and this is, um, this is normal as well, but I wanted to show you the, the kind of engorgement and the tortuous <coughs> blood vessels here. It kind of, it kind of, you think of like sludging of the blood a little bit there, and uh, again normal, but with tortuous blood vessels. There's the chirpy, right there. You know it's not nevus because you put your red-free filter in, and it does not disappear. And if it does not disappear, then you know it's it's uh, it more in the in the uh, superficial layers and not in the choroid. So this is his right eye. Looks great, pretty good, really good. I don't see anything right in there. And again, the rasters, this is a five-line raster going right across the macula, and they look good as well. And this is his baseline. His, again, you look right here, good retinal or fiber layer. This confirms his uh, minimal cupping. You can see on cross-section here, very, very little cupping. It looks good. And uh, we didn't do, that's 2015, so we didn't do ganglion cell analysis back then, but we do now. And so what's the treatment? 
for this guy. Well, we're going to just monitor him every six months, not for any diabetic retinopathy or the high risk necessarily of, of just of that, but we've got to, what I do is I repeat the, the Nervo CT in six months and check his pressure again so that I have at least two a year of what the diurnal pressures are doing and I'll try to check him at a different time of day. And I'm gonna communicate the findings of course with the physician that there's no diabetic retinopathy. But um, I am going to do this for about a year and a half to two years, um, about every six months. And then I will drop down to once a year on the nerve OCT if, it, if I can demonstrate that there's zero pro progression. So if you can prove, because, because his optic nerves look so good. That's my form that we use. And so I say like, dear Dr. So-and-so, the following is for your records. And here is whether it's normal, no diabetic retinopathy or abnormal. And if it's abnormal, what degree and that's just the form that we've used for the last 20 years. And again, if you do this, you're doing a higher level of care and you should be paid more. And that's what MIPS is all about, the merit-based incentive program. So if you are doing what you're supposed to be doing, the idea is that you should get paid more. And I like that idea because I have been doing this for 20 years and I never got any more payment, but I'm hoping that next year maybe I'll get 2% more or whatever it is and uh, be able to eat another Taco Bell. So here's the case study number two. 73-year-old white male, diabetic, and now for 10 years, his, his blood glucose is a little bit higher. Again, a A1C unknown. Vision 2030, and uh, again, normal eye, and then looks pretty good. This is a precorneal lens. Uh, kind of view what you'd have. Can you turn the lights down just a little bit more? We're gonna get into some more. Uh, thank you. Uh, but what you'll see right here is a little bit of a large CD ratio, not bad, but uh, up there. And so we're gonna look at that. And when I order the five line raster right here, this is going to reveal clinically significant macular edema because it's very close to the fovea right there and you will not see that on that picture right there and uh, that's why I do it and I have caught so many people with some clinically significant macular edema and they don't really have a sick looking retina even on photos it's amazing so if you're diabetic you're gonna get this especially if your vision is not 2020. If it's decreased at all and they don't really have significant cataracts, you should be doing that if you have that technology. And this is this is why is because it's defined right there. And so now he's going to have non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy with DME and it's actually CSME. And so what are you going to do? Well, you're going to refer him to a retina specialist and they're gonna consider either laser or injection. And you're gonna also communicate with the treating physician because that treating physician needs to know what the retina looks like because he could have bleeding already in his brain or heart or other places, just like he has in these capillaries right here, or kidneys. And then I'm gonna have him come back 
for a full glaucoma workup just based on the optic nerve and based on the fact that he's diabetic and based on the fact that he's over 40. Used to say 50, but now it's, it's 40 where the risk starts to go up. And the types of, of retinopathy, again, are, are this. And the number one cause for the non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, like he's got, is DME, CSME. That's what they go blind from. So when you are going to treat diabetic retinopathy, non-proliferative, you've got to control those blood glucose levels. And for every 1% increase in the A1C, there's a 35% higher risk of retinopathy for every, every point. So if you're at 6.2 and you go to 7.2, you've just increased your risk of blindness by 35% per point. So that's huge. And this is hard to say, see right here, but let me read this to you right here. It says, there was a sharp increase in retinopathy. Now this comes out of the American Diabetes Association Diabetic Care back in 2009. And it says, there was a sharp increase in retinopathy prevalence in those with an A1C level of 5.5. That's interesting, okay increased risk even at 5.5. This, this, it's abnormal. So when your blood sugars are normal, if, if you go into pre-diabetes, there's a reason that that's not normal. It's because it, pre-diabetics can go blind. You can have retinopathy as a pre-diabetic, okay? It's rare. You don't see it very often. But, and so you know, like at 6.2, that A1C, now that, now the, the risk of retinopathy just skyrockets. But that's why it's not normal because you can still have retinopathy and you can still have nephropathy and other things based on a, on a blood sugar that's higher than what is considered normal. So you wanna control these other factors too because hypertension and smoking and whatnot, these wreak havoc on the blood vessels in the body as well. So when you have hypertension and you have diabetes, you are at very much a double whammy for your uh, retinopathy and, and morbidity risk there. So according to the Diabetes Prevention Program, lifestyle changes for pre-diabetics have a significant impact on diabetes, diabetes prevention. The study results showed that a diabetes incidence was reduced by 58% and those who received intensive training in proper dietary intake, physical activity, and behavioral modifications compared to, now this is pre-diabetics, compared to 31% who received metformin. So this was 2014. So in other words, <clears throat> a program like Diabetes Undone, which we have done at our church locally at least four times now, we were the first place that it was ever done, in my, if, I, if I understand correctly, is in Greenville, Tennessee, we, uh, we've, that's what the, it emphasizes right there. So a program like that is much better, almost twice as effective as putting somebody on metformin right off the bat when they're pre-diabetic. And after 10 years, 10 year follow-up, the, the DBP researchers determined that the onset of diabetes could be delayed for at least a decade in patients who continued to eat properly and exercise regularly to follow the study's conclusion. Why only 10 years? Because they only followed them for 10 years. 
Okay, so if they, if, they, if they do the principles in Diabetes Undone, the Adventist health message, you won't have diabetes. It will continue to prevent diabetes. That's the whole point of why we're doing that. Now, I, I do want to speak to this really quick because I do have a, I have shifted my tune a little bit on this. And that is, I, so, so we got the data, and we've got science behind us, and we've got physiology behind us. You know, so when you're addicted to sugar, fat, and salt, and all these things, and you cut that out, you know, you, after several weeks, your body doesn't crave that anymore. You know, so, so all of these things are on our side. But I will tell you that if you ever tried to change your diet, it's hard to do. It's hard. Because, and, and, and it doesn't matter if you're smoking, doesn't matter if you're trying to cut out caffeine. Doesn't matter what it is that you're trying to change. If it's a want and desire of your heart, good luck. Good luck changing it. There's only one power in the universe that says, I will change your heart. And I will create in you new desires and new wants, and that's God. So if you can connect your patient with the hand of Jesus and so what I tell them, I'm, I'm like, you know, and I, and I tell them exactly what I just told you, basically. I, and I, before I do, though, I always say this. I said, I, I don't know if you believe in God. And I pause. <laughs> and I look for a nod or I look at a, no, or I, I look at a blank stare or whatever. Because, because you have to be careful. And I'm in the Bible belt. So I, I've got it a little bit easier as far as that goes because most everybody believes in God there. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, then I tell them what I just told you about, about you know, the, the source of a changed heart is Jesus Christ. And, and I tell them this, you know, how many times have we heard stories where a serial killer is on death row? And a serial killer absolutely loves, loves, loves to kill people. That's what they, that's what they like. Well, if that serial killer turns to God, God can actually change that heart of that person on death row. And you've heard stories like this. And that's, that murderer can actually have and become a loving human being, totally repentive of what they've done in the past, and the heart's changed. That's a miracle, and that's the power of God. And so when we look at stories like this, and we fail to tell our diabetics and our smokers and those patients who are addicted to Mountain Dew and white bread and bologna that their source of power isn't of themselves and it's not these studies. The source of power needs to be the hand of God. And so don't, so I tell, I remind them because they just told me they believed in God. And I remind them that look, and now that you're going to connect and, and, and you're going to ask God to change your taste buds and get him involved in your health care as well and the wants and desires of your heart, whatever, the, whatever it is that needs to be changed, whether it's gossip or pride or whatever. Once you connect to that, then you're connecting with a power that is so strong. This, you're not connecting to some rinky-dink little Buddhist idol that I saw in Mongolia. You're connecting with 
God, who is a star-breathing God. You're connecting with God who has so much power, he can speak and there's an elephant. He can speak and there's a giraffe. This is a God who designed this and he is wanting you to be healthy and he wants you to have life and he wants you to have it to the full. And so take the five minutes, get your little spiel, as I call it, and somehow get that into their brain. And, and it doesn't mean that you're going to baptize them after the five minutes. It means that that seed that you're, you're asking God, you're asking him to use you as a tool to plant that seed. And it's not our job to water the seed necessarily. The Holy Spirit will do that. Our job is to do whatever Christ is asking us to do. And, and are you willing is a very good motto for this meeting. Are you willing to go there? Are you willing to take the little bit of time, plant the seed so the Holy Spirit can sprout it up later? And uh, when you start getting your family doctor, your optometrist, your podiatrist, your endocrinologist, you know, and, 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 and if everybody would give this patient that same message, and hopefully their, their preacher, and hopefully their Sunday school or Sabbath school teacher, you know, and they're getting this message over and over that that's our, that's our strength, is that full dependence on God, doesn't matter what it is, then you've just done medical missionary work. And that's what this meeting is all about. So this is an important, important thing. When we go back here and look at these two types, how people go blind from non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy is the DME and CSME. How people go blind typically from proliferative is the retinal detachments, okay? And that, and, and they can also get the DME and CME, but the main, the main cause of vision loss is, is both of these. These don't have the proliferation of blood vessels, so they're not gonna have retinal detachments, okay? So you have to look at the mechanism of why. The retinal detachment is caused, this proliferation means new blood vessel growth, okay? And so the, the new blood vessels can grow in three locations, and you've gotta be looking at all three of these locations, the iris, the disc, and elsewhere. So, so NVI, NVD, and NVE. And if you see any of this neovascularization in any of these locations, that's a bad sign because that means that there was chronic hypoxia or low oxygen to the retina, and it's triggering this vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF, to cause this, prolifera oops, sorry, this proliferation of new blood vessels within the retina. Well, that sounds like a great thing because it gets more oxygen, but the problem with these new blood vessels is that it, they leak. And when they leak, and as they heal, it, it causes scarring, which then pulls the retina right off the back of the eye. And that's what causes the vision loss. That's why a non-proliferative diabetic retin retinopathy patient is not gonna have this. Make sense? And so here we've got this. This is pre-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And the capillary walls are damaged. And so you've got leakage of, of lipid and, uh, and blood into the retina. And if you've got a retina that looks like this, you know their kidneys are leaking as well. And then this is significant um, pre-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And, and this has CSME because it's got this lipid exudate right there by the fovea as well. And this is not something you want to see. 
neovascularization of the iris. And where do you want to look, by the way, for an NVI? You want to look at the pupillary frill right there. That's where it's going to happen, just like this picture right here. You're not looking out here in the angle and things like that. It's, it's usually going to start right in there. And uh, the problem is it'll affect the angle. It can affect uh, quite a bit. And uh, NVD, so neovascularization of the disc right there. was very sick-looking retina. has also the CSME right there with bleeding. And you're going to get these patients to a retina specialist very fast. And uh, they need to do panretinal photocoagulation, PRP. And what basically that does is it kills the oxygen. So there's a balance of oxygen demand and oxygen supply, okay? And so if you're in balance, it's great. But if, the, if you get chronic hypoxia or low, low oxygen to the retina, then what's going to happen is that you're going to, there's, there's a deficiency of oxygen, and so the body's going to create these new blood vessels to try to overcome that. And so what you're doing is there's such a demand for the new blood vessel, I mean, for the oxygen, that you're going to do pan PRP or panretinal photo laser photocoagulation to basically kill off some of the healthy retina to lower the demand for the oxygen to equalize that, and, and the new blood vessels go away. And so, what did I do with my clicker? There we go. And they can do uh, grid laser for diabetic macular edema. They can do steroid injections for diabetic macular edema. And the new ones, of course, are the anti-VEGF medications, very similar to macular degeneration that we talked about the last hour. This, again, is in phase three with the RTH-258 that's going to be nice because those patients don't have to go in every month. They might have to just go in every three months or so. And they can also do a vitrectomy if the blood vessels, um, or not only moves, removes the blood vessels, but it, it eliminates that uh, vitreoretinal traction that causes that worsening diabetic macular edema. So let's get our third case here. So 65-year-old white female, again, new patient that I saw three years ago. She's divorced. She lives alone in an apartment. Her last eye exam was a year ago at Walmart, and I can't remember if they dilated her, and I sure hope they did, um, but they might not have. And so uh, her health is managed by a local family nurse practitioner. She's been diabetic for 25 years, so they had better dilated this patient. And fasting blood glucose 300 the day before, and the last A1C was 13. Now notice, that the A1C, I saw her in December, the A1C was at the beginning of the year. So either the nurse practitioner is not getting, A1C is 13, you better be checking that every three months. Um, so probably non-compliant though. I'm sure the nurse practitioner would know better than that. And so I'm, this, this patient's just non-compliant, I'm sure. So best corrected visual acuity, not bad, 2025, 20, 2030. Blood pressure, again, not too bad. And again, slit lamp, dry eyes, which is very, very common. Cataracts, both cortical and nuclear sclerotic. And um, the uh, glaucoma suspect based on high pressure. And here's the interior look in, inside. And again, not too bad. And not too bad. Fairly normal OCT of the macula. 
Here's the other eye. Again, not too bad. Macula looks pretty good. A little blot hemorrhage right there. Yeah, a little druse in the macula. And so, yep, sure enough, CSME right there because it's showed up what you couldn't really see on the picture otherwise, which we see quite often. But there's something more ominous in this picture, and of course it's hard to see. You'd, you'd catch this on your slit lamp immediately. This area right there, right at the optic nerve, there is a huge amount of neovascularization right there. And of course, we're on a picture, so you're not gonna see it. But that's the OCT of the optic nerve. And you can see this neovascularization extending into the vitreous. And that is going to blind this patient if left untreated. This is, this is eminent blindness. So yes, so you get them right then to the retina specialist. And we got her there within three days and he performed the PRP the same day on that eye to decrease that demand of oxygen. And uh, he may need to do the anti-VEGF injection as well. Of course, both of us stress the need for good blood glucose control and compliance with her PCP. And we communicated to the PCP what was going on. And then once that is stable, then we will continue to monitor for the glaucoma possibility, cataracts, drusen, nevus, uh, the other stuff. So here's some, what the PRP scars look like in there. And these are just a few. This is uh, a little bit more uh, superiorly. And then this is like 360. And so we've all seen that before. So diabetes is the leading cause of new cases of blindness among adults aged 20 to 74. And the, N, or the NEI, the National Eye Institute, reports that nearly half of, of Americans with diabetes have diabetic retinopathy. That's a lot. That is a lot of sick eyes out there. So prevention and early detection is critical. And many attempts to approve, improve patient compliance and better glucose monitoring are available, including, you probably saw this three years ago that Google was working on, and this is the uh, Google contact lens with a device that measures the blood glucose levels within the tiers to try to estimate live 24-7 what the blood glucose is doing. And it's got a little sensor right in there. The only problem with this, um, that I see, uh, or one of the big problems, is that diabetes is a relative contraindication for contact lens wear. Why is that? Because they usually have dry eyes and they don't feel it. And so if you put a contact lens on a diabetic's cornea, you're just asking for an ulcer because they're not gonna get, get, that, they're not gonna get the contact lens out quick enough to, to do that. And so if I have a patient who just absolutely uh, has to be in contact lenses and, and, and wants that after much education, I will fit them, but they're going into a daily disposable silicone hydrogel lens and uh, that breathes very well, that they're getting the, the waste thrown away every day and uh, that's gonna decrease their risk tremendously. And so that, uh, covers that 
But, but I, what I want to talk to next is, is how diabetes affects vision and structures other than the eye, I mean, other than the retina in the eye, all the way from the front to the back. And so let's start with the outside of the eye and work our way in. How many of you have ever seen these palsies with the binocular diplopia with the diabetic? Very common. Six nerve palsy, bingo, right there. And so almost always it, you ask, you know, 70-year-old patient that comes in with this, nine times out of 10, it's gonna be some kind of vascular cause that's gonna resolve itself usually within two or three months. And if it doesn't, then you go order an MRI, but uh, usually it almost always gets better within two or three months. Very, very common. And that's just ischemia to the, uh, in that particular case, it was the left eye, this is the right eye, but it would be that lateral rectus muscle right there that's, that's uh, in the innervation's impaired. So extraocular muscles are affected, the cornea and the conjunctiva. If you've seen these little corneal uh, micro uh, aneurysms, basically, you, you, these, are, these are areas where the conjunctival microaneurysms uh, can be more common in a diabetic as well. There's a little close-up of it. So you can see these little things on the eye sometimes as well. I took that picture years ago with my slit lamp camera. This, this is, uh, dry eye is extremely common. And so multiple studies have shown that more than half of your diabetic patients are gonna have dry eye disease, okay? Over 50% walking in. And it's just very common. So they can have burning and foreign body sensation, but their number one complaint, of course, is gonna be the watery eyes. And that's due to the reflex tearing that we talked about earlier. And uh, some more of that that we see every day. And again, the meibomian gland dropout there. So why so much? Well, the peripheral neuropathy of the corneal nerves interferes, interferes with that feedback loop. And uh, then the insulin is less. So insulin is secreted by exocrine glands and it's found in saliva, breast milk, and tears. Insulin in the tear affects the epithelial cells proliferation and maintenance of the cornea. So if you have less insulin in your tears, you're gonna have more dry eyes. So when you have insulin impairment in the body, it's gonna affect this as well. And then inflammation is the, the, is the real big factor though. And that is, you're gonna have, so they're thinking diabetes, you gotta think of it as an inflammatory disease because that's what it is. And they have found that the, the, the fat in your body around your organs and everything, they actually act as their own endocrine organ and they secrete this interleukin-6 that increases that inflammation. And so dry eye, of course, that's how Restasis and Zyadra, the two, two uh, prescribed dry eye medicines that we use to chronically lower the inflammation. And if the inflammation's really bad, you gotta throw a steroid at it temporarily sometimes, you know, in conjunction to, to lower it. And it's just crazy, and it's all because of this inflammation. And that's what dry eye is. So that's that. Now let's keep on going in the eye. You got that neovascularization of the iris, so it affects the iris. You got it. It makes you more prone to have uh, cataracts earlier. Diabetes does. It's one of the diabetic eye diseases, like I said earlier. 
and then so it affects the lens. And you can get cataracts commonly up to 10 years earlier in a diabetic patient, just like you can with a smoking patient. So a smoker that's also a diabetic, they're gonna have cataracts at a young age. Vitreous, keep working our way through the eye. You're gonna have potential vitreous hemorrhage, neovascularization, you're gonna have new blood vessels uh, potentially growing into the vitreous like we saw in that patient earlier. It affects the optic nerve with glaucoma and it, uh, just like that, with the moderate cupping there, a little bit more cupping right there. Some more examples of this severe cupping right here. Look at the donut, not the hole, okay? So if you remember back, I'm gonna go back here a little bit. Cupping, don't look at the cupping. You wanna look at the donut. So that neural retinal rim tissue right here, that's what you wanna be looking at. This should be nice and pink and healthy looking, thick. And when it starts to thin, and you remember the isn't rule, the inferior, superior, nasal and temporal, thinning and, and so the, the donut here you can see is very thin and almost non-existent right here. And don't mix up the parapapillary atrophy with the rim tissue. And so that patient looks like that. That's the same patient I, sh I showed you earlier. So it can affect uh, glaucoma and then of course neovascular glaucoma. So now these new blood vessels, if they grow right here, they can grow in that angle and that will cause an angle closure, basically like a neovascular uh, glaucoma that is very, very difficult to treat. Because by the time the PRP kicks in and everything, you're, you've lost the eye because the pressure's up to 70. And so it's, it's not quick enough to save their vision in that eye. Because those new blood vessels just kind of block this trabecular meshwork right here. And it's like an angle blockage kind of event. Um, all right, so let's uh, go down here. So narrow angles, when we're talking about narrow angles, you always have to remember that just because the angles were open six months ago doesn't mean the angles are open now. So always check for angles. Always check the angles, I should say. The angles, I, I see narrow angles, I have to refer, in fact, I see narrow angles all the time, but I see narrow angles that are narrowing enough once a month to have to have prophylactic LPIs. And that's, it's, it's I, I don't think that we're, my own opinion is I don't think doctors are paying close attention. Luckily, ankle closure is very, very rare. Okay, so that's on our side. But you don't want to be the one. Uh, there was a, there's a, a, f a family I know that uh, they actually went to a pediatric ophthalmologist and uh, the kid had uh, cerebral palsy and the pediatric ophthalmologist did not check angles, dilated the kid with CP, blinded her. And uh, that was not good. And so very, very, and it's, a, and it's somebody that I know personally that that happened to, not a patient of mine but tragic, very, very sad. And, and it could have been prevented with a simple shadow test, even if the patient is in a wheelchair. Shadow test with a pin light, simple, simple, simple to do. So uh, be careful when there's narrow angles. These are the medicines that you, you wanna kind of look at, even Topamax and Detrol LA and any of these anticholinergics that are 
prescribed also can affect this angle. Uh, you know, our OCT does anterior OCT imaging, and so it's really nice to be able to look if you have a kind of questionable angle and you look at this, and that, that's, that's narrowing for sure. There's no question about that. And you look at this one, and uh, that's almost touching right there, but we do a five-line uh, raster here, and so, you know, the rest of the lines going through that angle are, are still open, but I don't like that. I don't, I don't, that's definitely narrowing. So you're, you're having to watch these patients and you would watch them uh, fairly close. And I, and I, I, when it's this narrow, I'm going to get the uh, consult by a glaucoma specialist. And, and if this patient goes blind, it's not going to, I'm not going to be the last one to see the patient. You don't want to be the last one to see a patient before they go blind either. And so other things that uh, diabetes can increase the risk is non-arteritic ischemic or anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. And especially if they're on Viagra, this is well documented. 41% uh, of these events resolve and especially 70% if, if you give them a high corticosteroid. But my associate doctor, she had a patient that um, had this and was on Viagra as a diabetic and called the PCP and this guy, this is a, a much older physician that just said, oh, that's garbage, that's ridiculous. And then, you know, cause she wanted him to know. And uh, so you can kind of tell, and you guys all know who the better physicians are in your town and who aren't based on things like that. It's that who's up to date and who's not. And um, so that of course happens right there and that affects the optic nerve. So why are yearly dilated retinal exams important for diabetics, either from an optometrist or an ophthalmologist? And that is because it's the leading cause of blindness in this age group, the working age group. Diabetes is the leading cause of blindness for that. 80% of all patients who've had diabetes for 10 years or more will have diabetic retinopathy. So 10 years, if somebody comes in and says, I've had diabetes for 10 years, you, you should be seeing some retinopathy. I mean, they, they're going to have retinopathy unless proven otherwise, okay? And so I'm looking for that. And, and this is a no-brainer, a macular OCT you're going to be doing on this because you're, you're going to be looking at that. So uh, early detection is, of course, critical, and, and Gail's going to talk about that here in just a little bit. And because diabetes affects more than just the retina, it affects all parts of the eye and affects all parts of the body. So that's why it's so important. This is new technology. This, we got this about uh, seven or eight months ago. And this is my right eye. And you see I had a vitreous tuft pulling t uh, with traction on that about 20 years ago that my brother-in-law, who's an optometrist down in Southwest Florida, who would have been here th for this convention, couldn't be, but you know, he caught that way back when. And uh, so when I was at SECO in Atlanta the last year, I'm like, well, well, take a picture of my eye. Let me look in there. And sure enough, you know, you picked it up just easily. This is a 200 degree field of the retina. All right, why is that so important? Because the current standard protocol from the Diabetic uh, Retinopathy Clinical Research Network is this seven field or four field 
digital photo, and you'll, you'll recognize th this here in, a, in just a second, the images. Um, but it's like 16 or more flashes per eye to get these combined image, and you're only going to get 30% of the retina when you do this. And so this technology captures 80% of the retina on one picture by using this green and red laser wavelengths. And they also have fluorescent angiogram capabilities, depending on which model you get. And so the retina specialists now are starting to incorporate these, and I'll tell you why here in just a second. My, th these also do the new fund FAF, the fundus autofluorescence. And what's nice about that is that this autofluorescent picture will pick up death. So if you're, so right there where my photoreceptors are dead, it's going to show dark, okay? Where they're, where they're still alive, but the RPE is accumulating the outer segments of the photoreceptors as lipofusion, and it, but through phago, phagocytosis in, in the RPE layer, um, you'll even get some little hot spots. I have two little hot spots right there, which I was not happy to see, because that means I, because macular degeneration runs in my family, and, I'm, and we're just gonna, I'm gonna watch that over time. But uh, that's great technology. And this is the uh, standard seven field picture of the retina that takes like 16 flashes to get and it combines all of those pictures together. And look at what you're missing though. So if you're gonna grade it even based on that, you're gonna miss all of this diseased retina out here that's easily seen. All right, and here, here's the color picture of that. You can detect twice as much diabetic retinopathy with these new, new cameras than you can with even the seven field. And we're gonna, without that, you're gonna underestimate the level of retinopathy in 10% of the cases. And according to these studies, people with more peripheral diabetic retinopathy lesions are more likely to progress than those without. So if you're only doing a central photo like we used to do, you're, and you're missing that, are you gonna see dot hemorrhages with your BIO in the periphery of the retina? No, okay, you're just not, you're gonna miss it. And so that's why it's important because these patients with predominantly peripheral lesions or PPL, there's a three 0.2% increased, uh, not percent, 3.2 times. So 320% more increased risk of two steps or more progression of diabetic retinopathy over a four year period. So that's huge, okay? So the bottom line on this is that if you see dot blot hemorrhages in the posterior pole, and you see another patient with dot blot hemorrhages in the periphery, which one do you worry about more? Now if it's right in the macula, you worry about this one, but which one is higher, It, it it, this chronic non-perfusion of the, of the retina, it's the PPL. It's these patients that, that are more, and we, we see this all the time, where we, we don't see any diabetic retinopathy until we actually look at the picture and zoom in. Patients with PPL had a 470% increased risk for progression from non-proliferative to proliferative. So very, because of the non-perfusion, because of the lack of oxygen, and they believe now that this non-perfusion actually starts in the peripheral retina. So, and uh, Plaquenil retinopathy, it, this FAF, the fundus uh, autofluorescence can pick that up with 
very, very easily. So when, if you're screening patients on Plaquenil, you have to have um, either the spectral domain, OCT, FAF, or the multifocal electro, the ERG, electroretinogram. All right, and the last thing I have here is understand why communication is so important between professionals. It's because the eye is the only place to view directly the blood vessels. Oops, sorry. And if there's damage in the eye, there's risk of damage in the rest of the body. And so good communication between the uh, eye care provider and the treating physician that's treating the diabetes, they have to know the information even if they don't know why. And uh, team approach is always better. So if they hear this from many providers, then you're much more likely to have good compliance. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.